<laughs> okay. So now that we've established uh, our, our, through our own direct experience, our, our illness, I think it would be uh, useful to continue with the theme that Spring shared with us last night, the theme or, or the, the metaphor uh, of the Buddha as, a, as the great physician or healer or, um, or doctor. And that the uh, Dharma and the practice is, is, the, um, is the medicine. And I, I can sense already, just as I mentioned before, when you... We have not really altered anything here. We've simply been creating the conditions for you to come face to face with your condition, whatever, whatever is presenting it, whatever presents itself. And and even though much of what we work with is the uh, are the what are sometimes called the defilements or the hindrances or otherwise known as the torments of the mind, uh, they the effect of being with them working with them moment by moment is each person here is slowly, slowly um, brightening, softening, tenderizing. And it, it reminds us of the, this alchemy that takes place in practice, this use of the medicine of mindfulness and the teachings. And when Spring said last night that the, the Dharma is the medicine, you may not know what the Dharma is. And if we look closely at, the, at what the Buddha said the Dharma is. What, what's the Dharma? The Dharma is basically the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. Four Noble Truths are the, the, uh, the uh, overview of the truth about reality. It's more of the, at least initially, it's kind of the philosophical view of reality, uh, how things are, the Dharma. And the Noble Eightfold Path is the training of, uh, that allows us to be able to see for ourselves uh, the, the Four Noble Truths and realize the Four Noble Truths. And so these two are an inter, uh, completely interdependent, interwoven um, couple, the, the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. This is the Dharma. This is our medicine. And... Just the, another way of describing how these two are so interwoven, the, uh, the first of, the, um, of the, what are called the path factors, the first factor on the Noble Eightfold Path is, uh, is, the, noble eight, is the Four Noble Truths. And the fourth, the fourth Noble Truth of the Four Noble Truths is the Noble Eightfold Path. So these two are very, very inter intertwined. And it's the, at the heart of, of what uh, the Buddha realized and what he taught is, uh, he taught what he had realized. And what he realized came out of his coming face to face with the, the fact of the, the human condition, his, and it, as he discovered it in his own mind, the condition of, I call it mental illness, kind of tongue in cheek. Because that the it's not mental illness in the normal way we think it, but the the basic confusion and delusion and and the habits of mind that um, that leave us in a state of of perpetual dissatisfaction. That's that's what we call the the condition of our of our um, that we find ourselves in. And I think it's important to do a little bit of background. And Spring highlighted a little bit of this last night. And when she asked that question, you know, or just talked about how amazing it was that someone like the this prince could have everything and be dissatisfied, and be um, be grumpy and frustrated, and and be in a, a state of of longing. You know, what what's that about? And and his life expresses so much of what all of us experience to a certain degree. He was human. He wasn't some kind of celestial being. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't some kind of David just floating in the ethers. That, uh, and on the other hand, he also wasn't this... Um, 
as many people think, he wasn't uh, a sufferer. He wasn't busy suffering. And many people have interpreted the teachings as oh, too much about suffering. The Buddha was actually called, after his awakening, he was called the happy one, Sukhiya. And so the whole of the path of awakening and the teachings are meant to be productive of joy and happiness. But clearly when he started his path, he was not in a state of joy and happiness. He was like you and me. He was in a state of, you know, what's this all about? What's it all about? You know, he saw that he had everything and uh, it didn't seem to give him a reliable sense of relief. He had lots and lots of pleasure. Relative to his time, more privilege, more pleasure than than was known to, to other beings. And yet, there was this feeling of queasiness, of unsatisfactoriness, of, of something that was just a little bit hard to be, something not quite right. And he later called this dukkha. And he said that everyone's life is marked, if they're really honest, by this feeling of what he called unsatisfactoriness. Uh, just not quite the way uh, we want it to be, uh, uneasy, difficult to bear, uh, frustrating. Um, anybody relate to that? Does that seem familiar? And that this is not, uh, in the teachings, this is not considered to be an aberration. This is just the way it is. If you're born, uh, if you are born into this world, the very definition of being born is it's the leading cause of this feeling. And it's not just for those who are, uh, are bad or... It, it is absolutely universal and is, uh, it, there's no hierarchy of those who experience this. Everybody does. And he began to see that because he, in his wanderings around his, his uh, lands and he stumbled upon uh, the realities that if anybody's eyes are open, they will see that, being, that beings who are born get sick. And he saw... And that kind of shook him up at first because he was young and, and uh, just hadn't really fully grokked that somebody, in fact, he ran into somebody near his own age who, who was extremely ill and that shook him up and it actually caused him to, to wonder, well, is this going to happen to me? And of course he realized it will happen to me. And this is something we don't, somehow we have this capacity to ignore the fact that that if you're born, this is what comes with the territory. We know it intellectually, but somehow it seems like if we do get sick, there's something wrong. And it often gets personalized. There's something wrong with me. But it's so absolutely universal. And he began to see this. And then he, through his wanderings, he, he also saw somebody who was extremely old. He says, if you're, he realized that if you're born, aging is inevitable. And any pride that you have in youth will be, uh, you'll, you'll experience some, uh, some rope burn if you hold on too tightly to the pride in youth. And if you hold too tightly to the pride in health, that you, you'll, um, you'll suffer a lot. If you don't just come to terms with this, he saw that he was, that there was some way that he had ignored this fact of sickness and old age. And then he saw that what has been described as the third heavenly messenger, the first one, is, these are heavenly messengers because they wake us up, sickness, old age. And the third one he saw, uh, which we somehow managed to avoid seeing in our life to the best we can, and that's in the, especially in the Western world, not in, in uh, many Asian countries where it's right out in front, but he saw a corpse. And uh, that shook him up too. He's, he realized, oh my Lord, I'm going to die <laughs> because he knew that would happen to him as well. And this caused a, a kind of deep, it's been sometimes described as a deep revulsion. But I, I'm not sure that that's, I don't know if that's accurate. And there's this word that's called samvega. It's kind of, it's a realization of the futility. And we start to awaken to the futility of trying to find something permanent and lasting in this world that we're born into. And... People have tried to make this humorous over the years uh, so that we can somehow accommodate it. You know, this, the one I was 
brought with me tonight is the the seasonal joke uh, about the four stages of life. You believe in Santa Claus. You don't believe in Santa Claus. You are Santa Claus. You look like Santa Claus. (laughs) And then from Pablo Neruda, he says, what we know comes to so little. What we presume is so much. What we learn so laborious. We can only ask questions and die. <laughs> Better save <laughs> sorry. Better save all our pride for the city of the dead in the day of the carrion. There, when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, it will show you all manner of enigmatical things, whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. <laughs> so by the time he saw the corpse, the pride in life. Uh, began to whittle away. And uh, with the cessation of, of that kind of pride, uh, he, his, his heart and mind started to open to reality. So you can see just eyes opening. This begins, a, uh, uh, it, it begins something, some natural process of, um, of wisdom that grows when we see things the way they are. Not as we hope they will be, that we want them to be, could be, should be, would be, were, but things just the way they are. The word that's often used in the Pali language is yata bhuta, things as they have come to be, things as they are. And it is this unvarnished reality, this, uh, this uh, realistic view of life that ultimately is a, is, is the, a big piece of the medicine that... Um, that liberates our heart from this uh, a kind of confusion and then operating with, with inaccurate, taking medicine that actually causes more disease. So as the, as the budding physician, uh, he didn't realize he was in training to be the great physician, but uh, at the time he, he felt that queasiness, he felt that kind of revulsion, he no longer could... Uh, he he realized okay if i'm if i get sick and i get old and i die then it seems like that's not very reliable and if i and everything that i seem to search for that to give me relief s- seems to also have a very short shelf life i g- experience things i've had every wonderful sense experience that you a person could have relative to everyone else and I've noticed that they've given me tremendous amount of pleasure, but that pleasure is very fleeting. It lasts a little while, and there's something that happens after it, when the pleasure fades away. That when I've gotten what I wanted, when I've gotten rid of what I didn't want, it seems that there is a feeling uh, for a while of pleasure, and then it fades away, and then there's a sense of... of uneasiness again the sense of first maybe a sense of loss and then and then interestingly enough what does my mind do what what do we do after we've had that experience of of loss i often tell the story of of being uh, i used to live on 20 20th street and dolores in san francisco i don't know how many of you are san franciscans but very good so 20th Street in Dolores is exactly seven blocks from Noe, the corner of Noe and 24th Street, where my favorite ice cream parlor was. And maybe it's still there, Double Rainbow at the time. This is vintage 1983 or four. <laughs> and I was uh, prone to at uh, any hour, if I felt the impulse to go have double rainbow ice cream, I would just follow that impulse. And one night, I was very comfortably tucked into my, into my, uh, under my Eddie Bauer comforter. I remember I was very proud of my Eddie Bauer comforter. And I was reading a nice little Dharma book, and the thought came into my mind, you know, it's ice cream. Just... <laughs> And, the, uh, and in a moment where there wasn't a lot of discernment, a lot of, not a lot of mindfulness, that, that feeling of that thought of that, 
that ice cream cone produced as the feeling tones as you saw today, produced a pleasant feeling. So all of our sense experiences produce some kind of valence, some kind of feeling tone, either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In this case, it was a pleasant feeling. And as Spring said this morning, that the moment there's just by law, the moment a pleasant feeling arises, it's quickly, especially if we're not noticing it very clearly, it's immediately followed by wanting. And that produces a little charge in the mind. And that charge, we don't recognize it at first, that it creates a little uneasiness, that charge of liking. But that charge then generates, that uneasiness then tells us that something needs to be done. And pretty soon that charge of liking turns into, what's the next step? Wanting. And then that wanting then creates even more pressure because the wanting is the state of wanting that maybe you've gotten to know a little bit on this retreat. And we'll introduce it in the in the practice tomorrow. That state of wanting is a state of, a fundamental state of dissatisfaction. And it, regardless of the objects, it could be waiting for the bell, wanting the bell to ring. Any of you want that? <laughs> you know, the bell becomes the secret to happiness and, <laughs> and we're in that state of wanting and, and the bell rings and then we go, ah, as though it was the bell, the object that made us happy. But what, what actually gave that sense of relief was the release of, that, of the tension of wanting. And so we often think that we actually have to gratify the desire in order to, uh, for that uh, feeling of unsatisfactoriness, that feeling of, of, of dis-ease to, to ease. So that's why in the instructions, in our practice, we not only notice our mind being in a state of wanting, Notice not just the object, but we notice what that's like to be in a state of wanting. If you take your attention off of the, off of the object, like I said, they're, they're endless and that doesn't even matter. But if you take your attention off of the object and you feel that state of wanting and you notice it, once the light of attention, once that light shines on it, that feeling shows its, its unsettledness. But if it's not being fed with with absent-mindedness and inattention, if you're simply bringing the light of awareness, because awareness has no agenda, it, ha- it doesn't interfere, it just notices what's there, that wanting hangs out a little while, and you may even feel the pain of it, and if you really feel the pain of wanting or longing, depending on what the object is, it, it, and you're actually feeling it, it'll, it'll crack your heart open. You'll, your heart will break for how, how much of the time you spend in that state of longing. But more importantly, just in terms of our basic freedom, you'll see that that wanting comes and goes, and we don't necessarily have to gratify that desire. But this night, I did not, um, I did not uh, track that whole little process, which we can uniquely do in this kind of meditative awareness. We can really be with things in, their, in that whole sequential thing, how we enter into a whole drama of trying to get somewhere, trying to f- satisfy something, and how much that leads us to leave home, to leave ourselves, and to fall into a case of complete mistaken notion of what really brings us relief. So here I am, so comfortable, reading a book, but that thought arises, the pleasant feeling, then the, then the liking, then the wanting. And before I know it, covers off, clothes on, into the, into the downstairs, opening the garage, into the, pulling out the car. I felt so lucky that I had a garage in those days. They were very rare in San Francisco. Drove up to 24th Street, got the ice cream cone. It was late at night. There's hardly anybody around. I take a lick of the ice cream, pleasant feeling, and then I realize what I've done. And I'm standing there, and it's cold out. I feel a little bit ashamed and embarrassed. There's this sense of, of uneasiness, unsatisfactoriness. And we often don't hang out with that feeling very long and really get it. But if you do, and there have been so many, I could, I could spend the whole evening telling stories of confessing my delusions about having fallen. I end just a little five second version. I ended up once with one of these, uh, one of these uh, desire attacks. Um, 
in the middle of a three-month meditation retreat. I ended up 40 miles away watching a football game in a motel room. So, <laughs> so this is... And, and then when my team didn't win, <laughs> and it didn't even matter if they had won, the, the, once that was gratified, the, 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 the truth revealed itself. And I was just such... I felt so foolish, and that whole lifetime, that whole drama had passed, and there I was, uh, having conditioned, continued to condition and habituate that state of, of craving. But slowly, after you do it enough, of, enough times and you, and you start to take the medicine of the Dharma, it becomes a little bit, um, just because of your your own suffering, you could say, your own mental suffering, it becomes the, your understanding of that, your direct understanding of that. My direct understanding of it led to uh, a, a more, not so much a, um, uh, a white-knuckle feeling of renunciation, but a kind of joyful feeling of renunciation, of realizing the, the impermanence and the unsatisfactoriness of and the unreliability of uh, all those things that I had become so addicted to uh, seeking. And I think it was very similar for the Buddha. He just he saw that it, it that there was just no reliable refuge in the continued pursuit of uh, and attachment to the pleasures of the senses. Uh, he acknowledged so much in his teaching the 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 great cause of happiness that the world of sense pleasures, the great cause of worldly happiness, and the, and the fact that we can even enjoy pleasures is the, is the effect of having some kind of purity in our lives, be, having our actions be uh, healthy and pure enough that we're, we're not so caught up in, our, in the effect of having caused harm that, that we're open enough and we're, we're well enough that, that, uh, that pleasurable things come into our life. That if you're a good person, if you, if you, uh, yeah, if you don't cause harm, it makes you available and your sense is open. And that's all beautiful. But uh, those sense pleasures, as much as they cause a, as much as they are the cause of a kind of uh, what he called worldly happiness, lokiya sukha, he also described that kind of pleasure of the senses. If, they, if that becomes our devotion, he called it the, the happiness of bondage the happiness of slavery, conditioned happiness, dependent happiness. You're happy if you have it, unhappy if you don't. And he realized that that's no, that's not really happiness. That's just bondage. Where does that leave us though? This world, this magnificent world of sense pleasures. It, it leaves us with, with the need to have, our, and our medicine is to have a proper understanding of the, uh, both the pleasure of things and the limitations and the understanding of what it means to be free with and of uh, some of the experiences that we usually depend on. So after the Buddha uh, realized that he was going to die and uh, being a prince wasn't going to quite cut it for him, even though his dad wanted him to go into the family business. Hmm. Uh, he, in fact, he, he is said to have said, I'm not sure, that he said that being a, a king or a prince or whatever would be for me like sitting on a bed of coals if there's, if there's no peace in my heart. And yet, uh, he didn't know what to do, but he fortunately saw a fourth heavenly messenger. The fourth heavenly messenger being a renunciate, a uh, somebody who looked uh, at least b- by their both their countenance and their and their clothing they they were a renunciate they weren 't all glorified and beautified they were they had the presence of someone who was living very simply but a, a great sense of delight on their face and ease and calm and balance and and he became interested in that, uh, and he saw that that something of that person it seems to be going against the stream of what everyone else is doing. So this is where the beginning of that so-called against the stream. But I think this is the monastic is really symbolic of uh, 
a way of relating to the world. It's not so much... Um, in fact, a wonderful teacher named Suzuki Roshi, uh, when he described the word renunciation, he says renunciation isn't giving up the things of this world, but, in, but it is in understanding that they go away. So it's having a proper, a wise understanding of what the nature of our experience is so that we're not uh, living in some kind of illusion. So we don't fall into that misperception of making, trying to make something that is impermanent into something permanent and lasting, which is what we often do. We think there's going to be some experience that will give me lasting happiness. And somehow we forget when we're in hot pursuit of that, that, uh, that quiet meditation he even tried that too. He, his first teachers introduced him to, to elements of what we do here, the conditions, the parts of the practice that produce states of concentration. And he had incredibly pleasurable experiences. And I'm sure that over the course of these few days, you've touched into a few pleasant abidings. Anybody? A few of you? Well, he saw that... Um, yeah, that these pleasant abidings were, uh, there was quite a lot of happiness. And yet he saw that, um, that even, and they last, that he seemed, these meditative periods of quiet seemed to last, last a lot longer than the fleeting ordinary pleasures, even food or sights or sounds or smells, tastes. But, um, but he saw that they were really, uh, just as unreliable in the long run as the, as the pleasure of the senses. He, he said they're also wonderful. They're the springboards to nirvana, these pleasurable states of mind. But they're also the corruptions of, of your practice if you go chasing after them. So he, he even saw that the, the great meditative experiences were unreliable. But that's all that he could find that was being taught at the time. And so he started, uh, he then went in search of somebody he thought would teach him something more reliable, more liberating. And he found some people who were, instead of being indulgent in sense pleasures, which is the world he had left, he found people who were indulged in seeing if they could harm their body enough to transcend people who were into ascetic practice of self-mortification and, and uh, denial. And, and it seemed that the fruit of that kind of extreme was to make people um, really sick, skinny, um, unable to have enough vital energy, bright energy, chi, uh, to be able to practice. And he saw that it was completely misguided, just as it was unreliable to rely on, on our usual sense experiences. So then he was on his own. And that's when he sat down under the Bodhi tree and said to himself, uh, I'm not getting up until I find something reliable. And he had, at this point, he knew it was an inside job. And th- as all of you do, and... And even when he started his teaching, he, he, um, he saw that after his awakening, he saw that there were people with just a little dust on their eyes, that if they, if, they, if they were pointed to what he noticed, that they could also realize what he realized. But as he sat there under the Bodhi tree, and I include all of you as those with just a little dust, I include all of us as those with little dust, and it... It's, a, it's a, an expression of understanding the f- that you are already here. Uh, you know that it's not going to be found through uh, the newest, um, larger iPhone. <laughs> not that it wouldn't be pleasurable to have one of those. But it's so obvious that, that, that that's kind of empty unreliable. So as the Buddha sat there under the Bodhi tree, he aroused some of the the sense of mindful presence, concentration, mind and body came into harmony, and he entered into this this, uh, wonderful state of concentration, but he didn't let the joy of it seduce him, 
as he may have before. Instead, he, he used the power of his attention, the same power of attention that can grow as we um, harness, you could say, this natural awareness, this awareness that is the most primary thing to each of us. If I tell you right now to stop being aware, as I think I may have on the first night, I don't know if I did, but if I tell you to stop being aware, what comes so obvious into the foreground is that there's, at, at the root of your nature, there's this quality of, of aware presence. Knowing that you're knowing. You can't even not uh, have that. But what we do in our practice is we, we, we harness that. We first acknowledge it, but then we bring it to bear. We, we, f- sh- we f- focus that light. And instead of focusing it on just endless looking and then endless commenting on what we see, you know, as my brother calls it, being a beacon head, always looking around, commenting, thinking about everything we're seeing, and, which is a, sometimes a fun preoccupation. But instead of that, we just shine that light and directly at the simple reality of the present moment. And this is exactly what the Buddha did. Instead of letting the joy overtake him, just shine the light. And what he discovered as that light opened up is very much the same thing that all of you discovered. You discovered the whole field of sensations. You know, we have this idea of body, one word, as though it's a thing, but did anybody feel, if you felt your body, is, it any, is there anything solid about that? Is there anything permanent about that you feel as soon as you open up that world it's just wild it's just ever changing vibrating pulsing streaming uh, aching I don't need to go through all the name of experiences but not solid at all and and so not only did he open up to his body and his moods and his thoughts he he began to see something common to everything that came into his experience and he saw that what was common, the common truths, the common characteristics of everything that came into his experience was that everything seemed to be coming and going, impermanent. And he had seen it in a general way in the world of his, his life, seeing the, rea- the more macrocosmic view of sickness and old age death, but he hadn't really examined it so carefully, moment by moment. And the more he looked into that, the more he saw that there was nothing, nothing in experience, either inner or outer, when we're mindful, either of the so-called external or internal, there was nothing that could be effectively clung to. There was nothing in it that would would last. There was nothing in it that he could even say was personal, was me or mine. Because it seemed everything just seemed to come and go all by itself. Thoughts and feelings. And we'll go much more deeply into this, the understanding of the, the selfless nature of things. That we'll, we'll explore that a little more as the retreat goes on. But an interesting thing happened to him. The more he noticed the rising and changing of things, just the fact of his noticing what was going on, and this, this is happening to you whether you know it or not, just the effect of noticing had the effect of brightening, 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 brightening his attention. His attention got so bright as your attention will be. That's why as uh, Spring was saying last night how everybody at the end of the retreat looks so shiny. Literally, people are, for us, it's as though we're getting blessings as people go through the retreat. Just looking into your eyes, it's, it's like getting, you know, I don't know if you've all heard the expression darshan, like getting a, a, a blessing from, a, from an awakened being. And it, it's simply each person here, uh, that, that light of your nature beginning to shine brighter and uh, some of the confusion melting away. So it's the same was true for the Buddha, but the brighter his mind became, 
the more luminous it became, the more reflective it became, the more everything was seen much more clearly. So we, we start to see things more clearly. And the more clearly he saw things, the less sticky they became. And so his mind just started to relax and not grab so much or push things away. And as his mind stopped grabbing and pushing away, just bearing witness to the the flow of experience, sometimes called the display of experience, he started to get happier and happier. The same things were coming into his mind, had been coming into his mind all his life. Same thoughts, same feelings, same sensations. That's just being human. You have all those things. We have five, we have six doors of perception, six senses. We have the door of perception called mind that has our thoughts and feelings. We have the, door, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body. We, and all those same senses were coming, but his mind was not uh, reacting to them. And the less he reacted, the happier he got. And he experienced what sometimes described as the joy of equanimity, otherwise known as vipassana happiness. And he realized that this kind of happiness is the first taste of 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 freedom. It's not the happiness that depends on getting what you want or getting rid of what you don't want. It's the happiness of not... um, uh, It's a well-being that doesn't depend on what's going on. And this is why we don't aim for a particular experience in our retreats. We aim for we aim for this capacity to be with the as they say talk about it in the Zen tradition, to be with the ten thousand joys and the ten thousand sorrows. To, and to be to find within us, to recognize that there is within us this unshakable, mountain like, sky like impartiality that can be with the joys and sorrows and, and, um, and that means to feel everything, but to, um, but to, have, to be uh, resting and well, not be in a state of being blown by the winds of circumstances and conditions, not needing so much uh, that ice cream cone to be happy, knowing already that that peace and happiness is my nature. And then being able to make a, a, a wise decision whether to get out of bed and go up to 24th Street for an ice cream cone. And I may have decided to do that anyway but at a certain time, but maybe not. But when I was caught up in that reaction in the mind and that liking and wanting, I, I had no choice. It was just almost like a, just an addict. So we're moving in a very gradual way from this kind of dependency, this worldly happiness, to what's called lokutra sukha, uh, unconditional happiness, unstuck from the, from the world of dependency, not having to be caught in this constant drama of trying to get somewhere. And this begins to seep in just as you're here. You just start to know, okay... If when I'm just here, and you probably noticed it, and I'm not looking forward to the next, to the end of the sitting, or I'm not looking back and replaying that that uh, that great sitting or that terrible experience I had when I'm just here, and it's either not replaying or not planning, or if I'm simply noticing that planning, or I'm noticing the memory. I'm right here and just being with things the way they are. And right now, even as you listen, if you're not looking ahead and not looking back and you're just here with however you experience things, we see that there, in that very instant there is a, a kind of cessation. There is an end of, of our, our mental suffering. So when the Buddha sat very in that balanced state, he had this great epiphany. He realized that his mind relaxed and it opened and he realized, oh, the reliable freedom, the refuge that I've been searching for, the, the awakening that, uh, that I've been trying to find, the reliable refuge, is none other than the, the very nature of my mind. That 
really the nature of my mind, this quality of knowing, doesn't seem to be affected by whatever is visiting. So this is the difference between a, somebody who is awakened and not awakened. And it's encapsulated in a wonderful little poem that's often shared on, in the teachings where the Buddha exclaimed, he said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. But it is... <laughs> I'm only halfway through. <laughs> luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And it is colored by all the, the mind states and the defilements that visit. This, the person who doesn't uh, practice, doesn't understand, who's not awake, doesn't understand. And they just get carried along, carried away. Then he goes on to the second stanza where he says, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is untouched by all the defilements that visit it. This the yogi understands, and therefore there's cultivation of the mind. So he realized that uh, within this, this as he described it, within this fathom-long body lies this whole world that we experience dependent on our body. Within this fathom-long body lies the cause of the world, how we keep making worlds upon worlds of where I have to go, who I have to become, what I have to get rid of, who's making me unhappy, who's going to make me happy, what's going to do it for me. He says, within this fathom-long body lies this world that I create. And then he says, within this fathom-long body lies the end of this world that I keep creating in my mind. And that's here. That's me. That's you. And within this fathom-long body lies the path leading to the end of this world. And where's that path? Here. In fact, in some way there is no path to the end of, of our, the dramas that we get um, absorbed in. The path is simply... Seeing the, seeing the confusion in our mind and staying where we are. Not stopping that tendency to go out in search. To believe that the end of the sitting will make you happier than you are. The end of the retreat will make you happier than you are. I'm sure some of you have, have uh, thought about a person here who might, you think might make you happy. We call it the VR, the Vipassana Romance. Somebody catches your attention and pretty soon you're dating and mating and travel and marriage and, and or you've probably had the opposite, the VV, the Vipassana Vendetta, somebody who if, who if they weren't doing what they were doing, either making noise or breathing hard or, or coming into the room late, how it, it, you know, how it all becomes all about you and how you believe that they'll... You know, all of that, that ends when we see that for what it is. And, and the path goes nowhere. So the Buddha sat there and he said, wow, it's right here. The way goes nowhere. And I just, I'm, I just was, I exhausted my mind seeking. Uh, and I didn't find the seeker at all. We'll get into that later. Uh, that dukkha, he said, dukkha is that unsatisfactoriness, is being born into these dramas again and again and again, being in this constant state of wanting things to be different than they are. Um, says, this is, you know, this is finished. So at first he didn't think anybody could get it because it was so close, so subtle, so near, so wonderful, so vast. He didn't think anybody would get it. But then he saw that there were people with a little dust and he went back to some of his ascetic friends because they were very sincere and, and uh, he thought that they were, they, were just, they were close to being able to realize what he had realized. So what did he say to them? He said, listen, this is my diagnosis for you. And for all of us, life has within it unsatisfactoriness, that which is difficult to bear. It's painful to be born, painful to get sick, painful to die, painful not to get what you want, painful not to want what you get. This is what he said. He said, there is a prescription for dealing with that. 
open to it. Welcome it. And you, want to, and you want to be able to say, I have welcomed this. I've opened to it. I've let myself feel it. And so that's what we're inviting you to do here. He, he didn't stop there. didn't just give the news about the unsatisfactoriness. Remember, it's a path of joy. It's all productive of joy. It produces joy. He said that there is a cause. And this was the, the diagnosis of what causes us to turn our basic unsatisfactoriness into mental suffering. And that is this chronic tendency in each of us to want things to be other than the way they are. That expresses itself as that constant desire for pleasure, avoidance of pain, that moving, liking, disliking, moving toward and away from, and constant being in a constant state of being obsessed by what's next and becoming what he called bhava, that being in that state of wanting more, 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 wanting to become someone, that wanting more existence, or the flip side, wanting it to all stop, aversion to life, and just wanting it to shut down. And the prescription for dealing with this cause called tanha, or craving, is, is let go. Abandon the cause. Let go. And hopefully you realize up to this point that the very act of bringing a non-interfering, mindful attention, coming face-to-face with what's there and being meeting what's there with, a, with an uh, unbiased, non-superficial, sustained attention, that that is itself the act of letting go. It is the opposite of clinging. It's the opposite of craving, the state of knowing. And he said, this must be, this craving must be abandoned, uh, must let go. And the third truth, the beginning of the joy, is uh, there is an end. There is a cessation of suffering, of this mental, this mental um, torment of never being, um, uh, of being in a constant state of wanting things to be other than they are. And uh, there's an end to that. And his teaching was, his prescription for that particular diagnosis is this must be realized. You have to recognize it for yourself. So it, this happens not just at some culmination of, of seven years or seven lifetimes or whatever. It's every time that you open to the fact of whatever is hard to bear and when you notice yourself not liking it and wanting it to get rid of it, when you let that emerge in awareness and you, you don't interfere at all, you'll see that there'll be a cessation of that. It'll fall away. And in that, you will also be practicing the fourth noble truth, which is the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the, which is the training of our attention to stay right where we are, to, to see the, the arising and passing of things, and to discover for ourselves the joy of awakening and the joy of, of letting go, the joy of equanimity. So... As, um, as Jennifer Wellwood says in her poem, The Dakini Speaks, she says, my friends, let's grow up. Another way of saying wake up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we really haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. 
Let's dance the dance, the wild dance of no hope. So let's sit quietly. So once again, the diagnosis and and prescription, the truth of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, must be welcomed, must be open to. The cause of suffering, craving, clinging, attachment must be abandoned. The end of suffering, mental suffering, the cessation of craving must be realized. And the path of awakening, the path of freedom, the path leading to the cessation of suffering must be cultivated and created out of our own lives. This is the Four Noble Truths. May these teachings, may this practice be cause of liberation for ourselves and all beings. Thank you for your long, enduring attention. Um, We have about 25 minutes for walking practice, enjoying the